Amen. Amen. Just before we're seated, I want to invite you all to uh, take the Bibles that are available in the pews. We'll remain standing just a moment more for a reading before our children go to their classes. We love to have the boys and girls be a part of just a brief time reading aloud the Word of God. And today it is on page 659 in the, um, the Bibles in the pews. That's Psalm 63. And uh, we'll be reading verses together to really signal and key in on a wonderful fact that the Lord meets us, of course, wherever we are. Um, but the psalmist, as many others, echo the, the wonder of awakening to the goodness of God first thing in the morning. And whether you're an early riser or you're not really doesn't matter because morning comes when your eyes' lids are open, okay? Let's look at it that way. But remember that uh, early in the morning will I seek you. This is a wonderful truth. But beyond that, we find here um, a, a, a reality that we want to see today in the lives of seven disciples. A zone, I call it a zone of the unknown, where our risen Lord has made himself known, and yet we don't know where he is right now. And we're going to be looking at that in a few moments. Look at Psalm 63, verses 1 to 8, and then read this as well. As all of us are called to be disciples, a simple, simple meaning of the word is followers of Jesus. Really, it, fuller than that means a wholehearted follower. It means a devotion and an attachment to our Lord in a, in a wholehearted and holistic way in our lives. But read together where every disciple who awakens every morning needs to know your heavenly Father is waiting to hear your voice. Would you say my voice? All right, let's read Psalm 63, 1 to 8. O oh God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. Thus, I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My mouth shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches, because you have been my help. Therefore, in the shadow of your wings, I will rejoice. My soul follows close behind you. Your right hand upholds me. Would you together today lift your hands unto the Lord as you place these Bibles down and for a moment give him the voice of your praise. Give him the voice of your very own praise. Lift your heart. Give him your voice. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Give him your voice any way you choose. You give him your voice. Hallelujah. Early in the morning, early in the morning, he hears your voice. He loves to hear your voice. We give you praise, Lord. What an honor that we can say that you're asking for our voice. What an awesome thing, Lord. We thank you for it. And Lord, so beautifully as we know, the voices of these children. Hallelujah. Could I get from boys and girls that are about to go to Explorers and Pathfinders, could I get a, on a one, two, three, could I get a hallelujah? One, two, three. Hallelujah. All right. 
Let's do that one more time. Come on. Did anybody miss that? All right. Moms and dads and grandparents, join us. Would you do that? On the count of three. One, two, three. Hallelujah. All right. And uh, we're going to be enjoying some good time together to fellowship after the service. I want to thank very quickly before the kids go, super, super thanks to Maureen and Jeff Sutton for being coordinators on this event. Would you give Maureen and Jeff a big hand and appreciate their loving kindness to serve. And, and all of you that have brought food, we thank you for being here. Take just a moment as Explorers and Pathfinders make their way to their classes to greet somebody around you. We welcome each of you that are here first, second, or third time. So glad you can be with us. You stick that one back. Yeah, down there, I guess. Yeah, thanks. <clears throat> Hey there, Heidi. Hey, good to see you again. How's it going this week, huh? It's going you doing good. good? Working yeah. hard, I'm sure. Yeah, Never yeah. Hey, Matt, God bless you. Thank you, I brother. <laughs> oh, yeah, it can get grueling at times, it doesn't can, it? Yeah, yeah, I understand. Yeah. <clears throat> Morning truly is a great time. I know for all of you who are or are married to or families with, a hunter or a fisherman, you know how much those guys and gals love those pre-dawn encounters out in the woods or on the lake or in the, on the river. And of course, of course, we wouldn't want to leave out all of the federal employees who drive pre-dawn to work, right, and many others, right. But but the sheer sensory elegance of an event recorded at the pen of the Apostle John in the 21st chapter of the Gospel of John raises a very good uh, pre-dawn question for us right at sunrise. We find the Lord Jesus Christ our risen and victorious crucified Savior, who has chosen a moment just before the break of sunrise to do what uh, John's verb in the first verse of John 21 gives us as a link to a thematic thread in the Gospel of John, and that is the word in John 21, showed them or appeared. And the New English Bible gives us this scene in these words that I, I want to preface first with the prior verse in the 20th chapter, and then have us hear the opening of this, I hope with a, a different sense of how the reality of disciples in the doldrums, in a place where it was impossible to have any knowledge of what the Lord might do or when he might do it. And yet it is part in John 20, 31, if you find that verse in your Bible, 
and I'm reading the New English Bible now, it's part of the total corpus of events collected by all of those who were eyewitnesses and then intensely investigated by the writer Luke, as we saw last week in the recording of that time of the Lord walking along too on the road to Emmaus to be made known in the breaking of the bread. All of those part of this meaning of this 31st verse of the 20th chapter of the Gospel of John, where John says, these here have been written, recorded in order that you may hold the faith that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that through this faith you may possess eternal life by his name. Some time later, Jesus showed himself to his disciples once again. He showed himself to his disciples once again by the Sea of Tiberias. For some curious reasons in history, the Sea of Galilee actually has four different names. And that is so it could be confusing to some Bible readers. It is the Sea of Galilee. It is in some places called Kinnereth or Chinnereth. In other places, the Genesaret Lake. And here, only here in John 21.1, the Sea of Tiberias. And in this way, Simon Peter and Thomas, who was nicknamed the twin, were together with Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee and two other disciples were also there. A total of seven out of that well-known group of twelve that then after Judas Iscariot betrayed, betrayed Jesus became the eleven to whom the Lord Jesus had appeared on the first night of the glorious awakening to the empty tomb that all of them were processing through that amazing day of events. The first night, Jesus appears in the upper room in John chapter 20, coming through the doors, needing not to access the physicality of the room, and yet being a physically glorified presence. And he comes to the ten. And as we know, Thomas wasn't there that night. And after they saw him and they hurriedly went to tell Thomas the news, Thomas said, I won't ever believe until I can put my hand in the wound of his side and touch that, that wound in his wrist. And so, seven days later, now let me stop and say, the, the passages of time in this are fascinating. I don't know about you, <laughs> I would have wanted it the next morning. Or Tuesday morning. Or not lunchtime on Tuesday. No, Jesus waits seven days. Then appears again in the upper room. And this time to the 11. And now John 21 verse 1 tells us that uh, again the accent is that Jesus is showing himself, making himself known. Now this thematic thread in the gospel of John is, is, is intriguing. We know that... Um, John 1.18 describes the necessity for the eternal, all-sufficient creator God to take the initiative in disclosing himself. So John 1.18 tracks in vast swaths of history the revealing work of Moses to bring the law to the children of Israel 
that Sinai encounter we looked at a few weeks ago, and then the fullness of God's good news through the grace and truth of his living son. And it explains this vast swath of time by letting us know that no human has ever seen God at any time fully and without any veil of protection between humanity's fallenness and the eternal splendor of the holiness of God. No man has seen God at any time, John 1.18, but the only begotten Son who is in the very bosom of the Father, He has showed Him, made Him known. The Greek term literally is the same used for exegesis, meaning to bring out of the text of Scripture the full meaning accurately. Jesus is the exegesis of the Father. He's the one who brings out of the timeless and eternal, powerful, infallible Word of God what it means to know Him. And yet He didn't leave it at that summary statement of the total life of Jesus in John 1.18. He, he accents it through the Gospel of John to show that various miracles were not just miracles for the meaning of that miracle to the immediate crowd or the immediate recipient, but that they were demonstrating as a sign. So in John 2, 11 and 12, after the Lord Jesus is drawn to a very human experience where water, where wine has, has been diminished at the, before the conclusion of a wonderful wedding celebration, and he is asked to bring hope where a sense of great loss is about to sweep across the hosts and hostess and that there will not be enough wine to finish the celebration. And it's something so mundane, seemingly so human, though though a wonderful event in people's lives. Is this what God is concerned about? Well, Jesus demonstrates, yes, it is. He steps into the very, on the very stage of that wedding event, and he gives the command to take the pitchers of water, take them to the host, wait for the very moment in front of everyone when those pitchers of H2O will be poured out, and in the pouring of the water, it becomes a very, very precious wine. And, and that's summarized in John 2, 11 and 12 by the words, the same word as we have in John 21, 2, or verse 1, that he showed forth his glory in that first sign of the turning of water into wine at Cana of Galilee. He shows that glory in another surprising way in John 13 when when the Bible describes again what will be a a mundane human scene, the, the humbling of the very Son of God to take a menial task, one that would for us in our day be the equivalent to mopping the floor or taking out the garbage or cleaning the toilets. That is, in their day, a common daily need, the washing of feet from the dust that accumulates on the the roads of commerce and social life. And Jesus, in John 13, the Bible says, shows 
himself to his disciples. He discloses something about God by the disrobing of his outer garment and the picking up of a towel and the filling of a basin with water and the invitation to disciples to sit while he, the master, washes their feet. And then here in John 21, he shows himself again to the disciples. The New English Bible goes on with this account that so elegantly expresses a very, what feels like a very normal interaction, and yet in the realm of, of the risen glory of God, where after the seven disciples have been somewhere in the region of the Sea of Galilee for several days. We'll speculate on that in a moment further. But it says, Simon says to them, I'm going out fishing. We will go with you, the others said. So they started and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now, for those of you that are using maybe a, the New International Version of, of your Bible, uh, maybe follow along there with me and read with me what happens next as these disciples say, we're going with Peter. I'd first ask you to look at verse 3 and think about this statement, I'm going out to fish. <laughs> well... That's interesting. He's going out to fish. Something that would appeal to any guy who's ever spent time in the beauty of a lake early in the morning, and here he begins late in the day and fishes all through the night until that dawn arrives. So in verse 3, they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. Now, anybody who has failed at fishing can understand the one-word blunt answer. No! <laughs> of course not. We're, we're tired. We're exhausted. We've been fishing all night long, and we have nothing to show for it. Guys don't like their failures to be pointed up anyway, so a quick answer is understandable. No, haven't caught any fish. But he said, on the shore, the stranger says, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Oh my, wasn't it um, Yogi Berra who coined that phrase, deja vu all over again? Here's a moment hearing that voice that is an unknown voice, when it must have rang bells in Peter and John's heart and mind, in James's mind, to, to realize he's telling us after a night of fishing that we're to just drop the net on the other side of the boat. And yet there was no hesitation. Even in their exhaustion, they just dropped the net. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. John 21, 7 says, Then the disciple, whom Jesus loved, said to Peter, It's the Lord. It's the Lord. 
As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off. And he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back to the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153 to be exact. But even with so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Would you turn around and tell somebody right now, it's the Lord? Well, I want to ask you to think for a minute about the dilemma that these guys were in, in that house near the Sea of Galilee, Alfred Edersheim, the great Hebrew messianic scholar of the late 19th century, speculated that uh, these seven possibly dwelled, had a, a dwelling closer to the Sea of Galilee than the other five. There's no explanation as to why there are only five named, two unnamed, and the other five uh, are the other five in, in the group, the other four, excuse me, because there were the 11 at that point, were not named. But none of those details are pertinent. In fact, one of the things that actually stands out about this passage to me uh, uh, so strongly is the, is the sheer sensory elegance of it. In fact, the kind of the kind of sense when you read this passage, unlike some passages in the Bible, that, that, you're, that you're there. There, are, there is a sensory connection on every phrase of this story. One, early in the morning. You can almost feel the crisp, cool air out on the lake on the Sea of Galilee. The, the breakfast that surprisingly Jesus has prepared on a campfire on the shore. You can almost hear the crackling of the fire and, and smell uh, the, the, the delicious uh, fragrance of fish cooking being offered after you've come over 100 yards out of the water dragging a net of fish. There are so many simple, elegant, sensory points of connection here. And yet, the story leaves us with a significant question. What was going on in this waiting time? And, and I want to ask you to think about, first, the totality of this um, setting, uh, because I want to ask you to think a little bit about a place you might have been, a place you might have dwelled, a place you may have stayed longer than you ever thought you should stay, and that would be in the doldrums, <laughs> What psychologists think of is a place where you feel bereft of motivation, maybe stuck, maybe stranded, and downcast. Now, the question that's troubling is, how could you possibly be downcast when Jesus is alive? And I want to approach this in a couple of different ways. One is, is about the context of this chapter itself and then the story. One is that this chapter of 21 of John is an epilogue. It's added, it is something that clearly was extra time of the savoring of the sanctified memory of the Apostle John in which he actually does what he said in verse 30 and 31 of the prior chapter that he to do, and that was to give a, even more of a sampling of these places where Jesus 
shows himself, dis- discloses what you couldn't know unless he initiated it. Now, now think about it like this, that the whole theme that we would wrap around this chapter would be that Jesus is creating new life in an in-person way through his word. It is the word of Jesus that says something that we might think is rather silly. (laughs) And that is, cast your net on the other side of the boat. Taken out of Scripture just standing alone, that sounds like a silly statement. That sounds like preposterous advice. Yet on the lips of Jesus, it brings to these men the very connection into their hearts that they they needed in this vast in-between zone. Now, we looked last week at at what I I call it the glorious in-between. Forty days after the resurrection of Jesus until he ascends bodily to the right hand of God the Father Almighty, where the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 7 that he ever lives, interceding for us, as well as in his eternal conquest as King of kings and Lord of lords. And yet, this story gives us an opportunity to tap into the vital connection that the Lord makes First to Simon Peter, and by extension to his companions, that you must first eat with the Lord before you can be a feeder and nourisher of others. And the connection between eating at the breakfast prepared by the glorious risen hands of our crucified Savior connects you and me with a mission of nourishing new life in this congregation where a connection can be stronger than in any other place in our lives with our brothers and sisters in Christ, as well as in the nourishing of the new life in Christ with every person that God gives us the honor to see and to touch. And this is why it's kind of notable, too, that If you again, with your Bible open, look at something at the end of chapter 20 and then zip down to the end of chapter 21, and by putting these together, we might for a moment here, a brief moment, we might put a wrapping around this remarkable epilogue chapter that many Bible scholars refer to as an inclusio. It's just kind of a, it's an uncommon word, but it's used in literature sometimes to refer to an intentional way that a writer brings together a vital theme with a crown at the top and a pedestal at the bottom, or we might call it bookends, but it's designed to put a thematic ribbon around the entire event. And and what, what would be that thematic ribbon? Well, we saw in chapter 20 these words, read aloud with me, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples. And then, zip down to chapter 21, verse 30, verse 25, 
and we see if every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books. And yet in between that is this amazing story that I think of as disciples dwelling in the doldrums. Now I said psychologists use that term to refer to a a time of boredom, apathy, carelessness, or listlessness, or aimlessness, but it comes from the nautical world of sailing vessels. In fact, the NASA has a specific designation for the doldrums, of all things. NASA, NASA dubbed it, some decades ago, the ITCZ, the Intercontinental Convergence Zone. Trust the, the feds to come up with some complicated way to describe something and give it an acronym, right? The ITCZ, once one... one um, one observer of that uh, commented that, that in um, the studies of those who follow these things, they refer to it as the itch. Well, this nautical phenomenon uh, is hard to visualize, but one way to look at it is that just north of the equator, uh, but in between the, north, the northeast uh, direction of, excuse me, the northwest direction of the um, of the southern trade routes and the other direction of the northern trade routes, there is this vast swath of territory, the ITZZ, where if a a sailing vessel gets into that zone, they're likely to have many, many problems ever moving out force of wind because it is primarily a vast, windless, motionless place. Now I want to suggest to you that James and John and Simon Peter and Thomas the twin, these guys in Galilee had to have been in in the windless place in John 21 where they didn't know what next to do. And because they were in a windless place, There was obviously a struggle, a difficulty of decision-making that went on. This ITCZ is so fascinating to to people, those who study the climate and atmosphere and so forth, that that a, a, a very sophisticated digital project was developed just a few years ago where, uh, where the old logbooks of ships that had sailed the oceans all the way back to the early 19th century, where all of these logbooks, thousands and thousands and thousands of them, were, were compiled into a, a digital project in, in companionship with the Mari Museum, the, the great uh, first explorer and the navigator of the, of the seas in the early 19th century, and they got all of those logbooks from that museum and hundreds of other places, and they digitized, multiplied millions of entries of logbooks of sailing on the seas, created this weird-looking digital map, which you can't tell from where you're sitting, but that is a digital representation of the bodies of water in between the continents using only the data points of all of those 
ancient old logbooks, as many as they could find up to modern times of nautical exploration. And, and what I've circled there is something that the, the first responses of those who studied the digital work found very intriguing. They, one guy said, it looked to me like a place where you might fold a piece of paper back and forth, uh, like something that was, uh, that was creased and then folded over and over again. And the question as to why that line was so pronounced there was explained by the fact that this doldrums is a belt around the earth that actually causes a stillness and calmness to come because of the direction of the upsurge of warm air against the currents of the trade winds. And this vast zone where the doldrums are felt is a place where some years ago I read about a Norwegian who had ended up on a little raft and had gotten into that zone and almost died as he sat in windless, motionless water waiting for help. It's a place where you don't feel the wind. With your Bible open to John 21, verse 1 through 4, I want to ask you to think about what it must have been like for John and Peter and these guys to have literally seen the Lord alive, not once, but twice. Now think about it. They followed the directions to go up into Galilee. And yet when they get to Galilee, they don't know what to do. On this uh, digital map, when they couldn't figure out why the extra digital imprints of millions of data points through the computer created that dark black line. A reader from Buenos Aires, Argentina, explained it. These, on that map, these are the doldrums. The point where the trade winds rarely blow the sail ships of the age simply got stuck in that region until a random weather condition comes up and throws some gust of wind that can take the ship out of there. <laughs> Many people who know our Lord is alive, who know that death, hell, and the grave has been conquered and that tomb left empty stands as the visible reminder of what Jesus said to John on the island of Patmos when he said, Behold, I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I hold the keys of hell and of death. Yes, Jesus said, Fear not, John. I am the first and the last. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. You can trust me. And yet, look back at your text, and I want to ask you to think about something really odd that happens when we find ourselves in a windless, motionless place. In our Christian life, we can have a day like they had. 
And I call it a day like no other. And think of it like this, that these seven disciples were in a profoundly uncertain time because they encounter, but they encounter Jesus while fishing. <laughs> and that raises a question that I put with a simple question mark. Is it okay just to go fishing? Now you might say, why are you asking, Pastor, such a ridiculous question today? Is it okay to go fishing? Let me tell you why I'm asking that question. Because when you read the text, you can see very clearly here that it is described in the most gentle and simple and natural means. The seven disciples are near Galilee. We don't know exactly how many days have transpired. We can only kind of guess at the time tag, and I think of it like this, that um, they said to him, we'll go with you when they went and got into the boat. But the time tags between the resurrection and this event are not exactly known. Here's the parameters we have. John 21 says afterwards. John 21.4 says the next morning, after that night on the, on the water, early in that morning Jesus meets them. And then John 21.14 says this was the third time Jesus appeared. But here's what I want to point out to you. We know what scholars have called the octave of Easter, those eight days after the resurrection. We know that they were told to go to Galilee, but the, the, day, the, the journey to Galilee, uh, we don't know the exact timing of it. Of course, we can guess. Uh, but I suggest to you that what was happening in verse 2 and 3 is the zone of the known was encroaching into the zone of the unknown. They knew he was alive. They knew he By this time, even Thomas had said, My Lord and my God. And they traveled to Galilee. And again, friends, I'm guessing a bit, but I love this because I think it helps us to kind of zero in on, on the doldrums. Wouldn't you be in the, a form of motionless, windless condition if you were in their condition, in their experience? Because I just checked it out. If I wanted to go from Jerusalem to Capernaum, let's say today, this is a current ad for a bus trip in Israel. A bus trip today, if you went to St. Peter's Church in Capernaum and you left Jerusalem, you can get there in about four hours. Actually, it said three hours and 46 minutes. I added 14 minutes to the estimate because I know I'd want a bagel before I got there. Four hours today by bus. Oh, but not, not then. You see, you see, there was an arc of post-resurrection instructions that said, from Jerusalem to the Sea of Galilee... And what did Jesus said? Read aloud with me what he said there in Matthew 28. Do not be afraid. Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there, what? They will see me. Now when you hit John 21, then you find them. You find these disciples, and it's intriguing. We don't know. It probably took them two to three days. Probably a three-day journey. So let's say from the ninth day after the resurrection, until the twelfth. Now let's say they've gotten to Galilee and they're in one of their homes and spending time together. I'm sure they had prayer. I'm sure they had times of praising God. They were probably 
poring over scriptures that now they, now they could begin to understand. And, 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 and it's intriguing. The text doesn't tell us. It could have been 13 days, 14 days, 15 days, 16 days, 17 days. It could have been two weeks after the resurrection. We do not know. And that's exactly why I suggest to you, these seven were disciples in the spiritual doldrums. There was a windless, motionless stillness that after a while, well, let's see, three days, four days, five days, we've been eating together, we've been reading the scriptures, we've been having some praising times. Peter says, I'm going fishing. The other guy said, I'm going with him. Now, you may wonder, why have you taken so long to talk and think about this? And I'll tell you, there's a mistake in reading the Bible that we, we can learn from this. Some people read John 21, and they criticize Simon Peter. Maybe you've seen it. Well, Peter shouldn't have been going back to fishing. Peter was called of God. He had no business going back to the lake. Maybe Peter's backsliding. Maybe Peter has lost his way. He's lost his purpose. Do you, if you study the text, you'll find not one indication of the text of that fact. In fact, all you see is a warm, elegant symbol. don't know what to do. He says, I'm going fishing. And you know something beautiful? The sovereign God is watching his servants. Jesus chooses sovereignly a normal daily situation to go and find these men. Why? To show his glory. Now, I'm going to give you four takeaways today, and I want to give these to you right now as we look at it a little bit further, but I want you to think about these. There are four things we can take away. One is that the risen Savior sees your struggle. You may be in a windless, motionless place. They, see, we know the end of the story. We know Pentecost. We know the ascension. They didn't. For all Peter knew, we saw him in Jerusalem. Thomas said, my Lord and my God, let's hit the road to Galilee, guys. And they did. Not a four-hour bus trip like they could today. (laughs) Probably a three-day trip. And then several days maybe in the Sea of Galilee area. And Peter just says, I think I'm going to go fishing. A normal, natural, understandable thing to do. And the Savior, number one of our four takeaways today, I call this your takeout bag. The Savior sees your struggle. He sees you even in that quiet place. Secondly, silence plays a powerful role in our spiritual growth. Silence plays a powerful role in our spiritual growth. Let me give these to you so you can be easier to follow them. And I want you to think about it like this, that silence in the lives when we perceive there's a silence from God, and yet we know Jesus is alive. That is enough. And the decisions 
we make are in a wonderful realm of freedom. If you are following the Lord and you are loving the Lord, may I put it to you this way? I'm talking about disobedience now. That's a separate topic. But I'm saying if you love the Lord, if you're following the Lord, if you're worshiping the Lord, if you're walking with the Lord, but you say, I haven't heard from God. And could somebody shout out eight days? Say 15 days. Say 25 days. <laughs> I don't know how long your doldrums are. But I know God used that silent zone in Peter's life to bring about a sovereign encounter by which he learned the nourishing of new life. The third takeaway I want to give you is that space for exploring and enjoying your life and learning is vital. We, we can only surmise why Jesus put so many gaps between the appearances, but one of the reasons could very well be that in that glorious in-between, <laughs> Jesus was giving them time to soak in the Scriptures and to absorb what they were seeing. It was so radically different than they could have ever expect it. And then finally, the last takeaway I want to give you today is that nourishment in Christ is both receiving and giving. Now, now I say all that to just kind of summarize for you what I believe is important to know about Peter. And that is, we see Peter, and the way some people describe it before he's has this encounter. Somehow Peter is just racked with guilt. He failed on the night of the betrayal. He is dejected. He's discouraged. He's backslidden. He's gone back to fishing. There is not one thing in the text that says that. In fact, by the contrary, Luke 24, 34 says that Jesus appeared that very day of the risen glory. I believe that from resurrection day, Peter knew he was right with God. But it doesn't change, friends, that there are times when you're sitting in the house, you're driving in your car, you're in between commitments, and you're not really sure what to do. And here's what I think is wonderful. Before we close it, would you look back in your text and look at this wonderful place in John 21, 7, where it says, as soon as... As Simon Peter heard John say, it's the Lord. He wrapped his outer garment around him, for he'd taken it off so he could work through the night. He'd, he'd taken off that outer cloak. He probably just had something around his, his waist. But once he knows it's the Lord on the shore, it's a hundred yards swim back to shore. But Peter grabs that cloth, that cloak or that robe around him. He wraps it around him. And he splashes into the water. Don't you love Peter wanting to be with Jesus? And here's what I want to say to you. This is not the action of some, it's not the response of a guilt-ridden soul who's wrapped up in angst. No. This is the response of a man who's been touched by his risen king, knows that he has everything under control. And yet for a few days in Galilee, maybe a couple of weeks, he doesn't know what to do. I was thinking about all this when I picked up a wonderful insight that comes from the, actually a book 
published the year I was born. That's how old it is. It was published in 1957. Catherine Marshall, the, the widow of the, of the noted uh, United States Senate chaplain, Peter Marshall, whose words in sermons and prayers so galvanized and stirred the heart of the nation in the depths of World War II that Peter Marshall became kind of a, a household name. But he died a very young, as a very young age as a pastor in the D.C. area. And after, and over the years, Catherine began to write her story of coping with the loss of her husband and the many things that went around it. And she gets to a place in her story of the, in the book called To Live Again where Catherine talks about one of her struggles in this doldrums of life after losing a loved one, that she plunged into the doldrums of great aimlessness for a while, a feeling of the motionlessness, no wind moving. What is life when your most beloved has now been taken from you? And in her case, beloved, also the chaplain of the United States Senate, one, one that presidents and and prime ministers and kings came to for spiritual counsel, senators and congressmen. And, and Catherine reflects on her questions. She raises many of the questions many of us would ask. Well, are we going to know people in heaven? Will we, rec- will we recognize each other? What will we be doing in heaven? Will In heaven, will we understand? Will we feel just intolerable grief over things that we did wrong? She's wrestling with questions some of which would have easy Bible answers, but they're plaguing her mind at this point. And and she says, I realized one day that I wasn't consulting the Bible. I got back into the Word of God and I began to read about that topic specifically. She said, I've been in Bible all my life, but I'd never studied it that carefully. And once I began to read carefully what the Bible says about death and immortality, Catherine said, I saw that the way the Bible describes the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus is bathed in the sunlight of normalcy. What an amazing insight. I thought that's exactly what Simon Peter's splash into the water to swim to the living Lord. It's bathed in the sunlight of normalcy, as is the invitation of Jesus. (laughs) When he says, come and have breakfast. Jesus inviting you to come and to have breakfast. None of them dared ask him, who are you? They knew It was the Lord. So the showing forth of the Lord Jesus, the showing forth of his nature, led to the astounding experience of these disciples being fed by the living Lord. Not only fed by him, he's the chef in the kitchen. He's the campfire host. And... Unlike last week when we saw a foreshadowing of the communion meal and the breaking of bread at the table, here it seems to be the intersection with the normal, daily, average life of every one of you and me. Jesus says, when you come to me for nourishment, 
then you'll be able to partake of what he gave to Peter. At that campfire, we meet Jesus in the most surprisingly simple way. Because in Luke 22, 27, Jesus gave them this astounding statement. I am among you as one who serves. That wasn't just true at the campfire on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Friends, that's true now because the Lord in His majestic holiness has given us an invitation to feed upon Him. And when we do, we carry the same commission, maybe in very different ways, that He gave to Peter when He said, if you love me, feed my sheep. If you love me, Take care of my lambs. If you love me, Peter, follow me. As we bow for prayer, I want to ask you to think about the motionless, windless place that you might be in at times when your soul is in the doldrums. And I want to ask you to think and know that in that zone of the unknown, Jesus welcomes your curiosity, your exploration, your imagination. Jesus has created a zone of the unknown that we're to thrive in. And, and how clearly he showed it by not only loving those, those men, but actually making their breakfast for them and inviting to partake of fried fish and bread. What a vivid picture of God the Father, Jesus the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Trinity, wrapping around you the invitation, know wherever you are that the victory of Jesus is not dependent on your feelings. It's not dependent on how the wind is blowing today. It is a certainty that, as Catherine Marshall said, is bathed in the sunlight of normalcy. That is, God wants you to know he meets you in the normal world with his magnificent grace. Heavenly Father, your word tells us in John that from the fullness of his grace we have all received, grace upon grace upon grace. I pray today that in our sharing of this meal, in our fellowship around the table, in our understanding of the mighty gift of the living God who welcomes us to walk, even in those windless places where we're not sure what's next, that we can always do it knowing our living Lord, our triumphant Savior, is the one whose nourishment we need the most. Nourish this church. Nourish these hearts that we might be nourishers of the new life in others. In Jesus' name, amen. Could I invite you to stand together for just a moment? And uh, we love to have an invitation because after every service, we want to pray for those that have a specific need. We're not doing that in the way of timing today. But I want to ask uh, Brother Jim Mingle to come up for a moment. And I want to have our prayer over our meal so that as we go into the line and you can go and 
uh, serve yourself and visit with friends. And I want to ask Brother Jim to lead us in prayer for this dinner today and invite you to be a part of strengthening fellowship in the body of Christ. Amen. Father God, Lord, I thank you.